Welcome to the ninth episode of PD Exchange, the peritoneal dialysis podcast, where we discuss the latest and the best of PD literature. I'm your host, Dr. Nikhil Shah, a nephrologist at the University of Alberta, Edmonton, Canada. And with me is my co-host, Dr. Jeff Burr, a nephrologist at St. Michael's Hospital, University of Toronto, Canada. Dr. Pearl is also the editor-in-chief of the journal PD International. For today's episode, we are talking about dialysis access for peritoneal dialysis, and both our guests know a thing or two about this topic. Dr. John Crabtree is a general and laparoscopic surgeon and is affiliated as the visiting faculty with Division of Nephrology at the Harper UCLA Medical Center. He is the chairperson for ISPD's PD University for Surgeons, and he is also the associate editor for PD International. And we have Dr. Matthew Oliver. He's a nephrologist and division head at the Sunnybrook Health Sciences Center in Toronto, Canada. His primary research focus is on optimizing use of peritoneal dialysis in the home. He's the former president of the ISPD North American chapter and co-leads the North American PD catheter registry. Today, the topic of discussion is the paper titled A Multi-Institutional Observation Study of Outcomes After Catheter Placement for Peritoneal Dialysis in Japan. The paper is published in the November issue of PDI, and Dr. Crabtree has written an editorial on the same. Welcome to both of you, and I will hand it over to Jeff. Thanks very much, uh, Nikhil. And uh, yeah, I do feel a little bit like I'm in, in the midst of PD access royalty. Uh, Dr. Crabtree, who's really yeah, revolutionized the way we approach PD access uh, and really has got it down to a science. And Matt, um, who has uh, is one of the uh, uh, co-principal investigators of the North American PD catheter registry. It's uh, really great to be here. And uh, it's not by design that we have an all-male panel or a mantle. Uh, this just happened to be by fluke, as I'm sure you'll attest from our previous podcasts. We've been uh, hopefully successful about having a pretty good gender balance, and this was a complete accident, and uh, we'll certainly make it up for future podcasts. So uh, I apologize in advance that our authors from Japan couldn't be here, um, but hopefully, Dr. Crabtree, uh, if you wouldn't mind uh, over a few minutes just to summarize uh, the main points of the article in PDI. And I also want to say that this article is really a jumping off point for tonight's discussion to discuss the issues of PD access in general. And, and hopefully we'll be picking both of your brains on this topic, hearing some updates from the registry perhaps, and also asking you about some thoughts for some direction the PD community should be going. So maybe John, um, if you wouldn't mind uh, telling us a little bit about the article and some of the key findings. Okay, Jeff, thanks. Uh, this was a multi-center uh, study of outcomes after PD catheter placement uh, in Japan, and they contrasted their results with the ISPD guidelines on uh, PD access. Uh, it, the study was comprised of 49 collaborating institutions. Uh, they performed 409 catheters uh, implantations during the study period. Most of the catheters were placed by uh, nephrologists, 69% and surgeons placed about 30% of the catheters. And most of the cases, have about 87%, almost 89% were placed by open surgical dissection uh, or laparotomy. Uh, laparoscopy uh, uh, accounted for only about 12% uh, of the catheter placements. 
Um, the uh, remarkable thing about this study is that uh, the nephrologist placing these catheters um, um, had a, a catheter patency of about 93.7% uh, at uh, 12 months. And so this is really outstanding. It really actually uh, is close to what we expect with advanced laparoscopic techniques, uh, which have uh, shown a patency rate at uh, about 12 months of greater than 95%. Uh, they also uh, looked at uh, catheter uh, or technique survival, uh, and uh, they determined that uh, in the 12 month period uh, that they had a uh, only a 13.5, I mean, 15.3% uh, technique uh, failure rate. So that too was also good. So um, my question is, did they experience a lot of center to center variability in that outcome? Or was it a pretty consistent, uh, were they pretty consistent results? Or did they look at that at all? Uh, they did not look at it uh, because they felt that uh, uh, some of the centers had such small numbers, they didn't feel like it would be a meaningful uh, comparison. Right. And and I think that that's something that I think um, we all sort of uh, anticipate we might see, at least um, and maybe Nat can comment, um, maybe from the North American registry. Do you think you get the sense that there is center-to-center -center variability in PD access outcomes? Um, we've analyzed this a little informally uh, across programs because part of the part of the objective of the registry and our grant is to look at these variations more formally. But um, yes, there is variation among sites, and um, there's a sense too that maybe sites are some sites are more skilled at managing the complications too. So there's two things sort of going on, which is the sort of pure incidence of the complications, if you like and then also how they're managing through those complications, which because if you look at the endpoints for this uh, study, it's invasive, it's either invasive procedures or revision procedures or PD catheter removal, which would coincide with termination. So it's kind of a surrogate for termination of PD. Um, so, you know, they have to get to that point in order to hit the endpoint. But if someone is able to skillfully manage around that endpoint, um, then you know you could you can get variation from that as well, right? So you know it's really interesting that this paper came out when it did, because uh, I'll just highlight that there was recently a paper in JSON that was published, um, uh, e-published in the last month or so, and that was using um, uh, U.S. Uh, claims data. So this was only patients who had Medicare insurance, I believe, and um, I'm sure some of the Americans there can correct me if I've made any errors in that, and looked at PD catheter procedures in three groups of patients, those who had surgical catheter placement, those who had interventional uh, nephrology placement, and those interventional radiology. And what was interesting about those findings is that the follow-up procedures were much higher for nephrology and radiology placed catheters than surgical catheters. And so, um, of course, what really stands in complete contrast to the experience in Japan is the overwhelmingly higher use of surgical catheter placement, for example, in the United States than Japan. And I just wonder, John, you know, your feed, your feedback, you know, is the take-home message that PD catheters should be placed only by surgeons um, in the US based on that experience? Or do you think some of the uh, outcomes that were achieved in Japan um, by a nephrology placed uh, uh, PD catheters can be reproducible in sort of other environments? 
So I really think the out, the outcomes were based upon the training that the uh, uh, provider had in placing the catheter. So with that in mind, I think that really any of the specialties, whether it be surgeons or interventional nephrologists or radiologists, yeah. uh, uh, should be able to produce uh, uh, outcomes based upon the uh, the uh, extent of their training. Yeah, and and you showed a really great picture. Received quite a bit of of, uh, of a social media discussion about a group of um, a group of training nephrologists, I believe, sitting around some chickens, um, practicing their access placement. I hope they had a lot for dinner that night, <laughs> and the chickens didn't go to waste. But I think uh, that you definitely um, you definitely piqued our interest about the extensive training that takes place in Japan. Maybe you can describe that as a model for what we could potentially replicate in other parts of the world. Well, I think what's important uh, about it, regardless of the model that you're using, uh, <laughs> is that uh, is that the hands-on aspect of it. You know, you can talk about catheter placement or, or preach to people who um, need to improve their techniques, but unless you provide them a hands-on opportunity uh, to develop their skills, you're probably not going to move the needle much in improving the outcomes. Yeah, I, I want to jump in here and ask a question to John. If these are residents or trainees in nephrology or nephrologists, the whole, whole North American trend is biopsies are being done by radiologists, sperm cats are being inserted by radiologists, and the, the movement away from procedures is, is, is disturbing. I trained in India and I used to do all these procedures. And then I used to put in PD catheters, the straight ones. So the question is, if if that is the key, that training is is so important, hands-on, is that something that needs to be incorporated? We are adding a new procedure to the people who are resistant to this? So uh, maybe uh, the three of you can answer this question. You know, the number of ESR, uh, ESKD, ESKD patients that you have, uh, do you think that you have room in your practice to, to have a uh, more active role in placing uh, catheters. I'm going to say, you know, this is, a, this is a tricky one, and we could have a debate about to what extent um, PD access placement should be something that's uh, taught in nephrology training programs. And I certainly can tell you from my experience, I don't have the bandwidth to expand my practice to placing PD catheters. Having said that, um, in my program, we place a lot of advanced laparoscopic catheters uh, that are embedded. And the only way that I could get that program up and going is if I took on the responsibility of catheter exteriorization, not nearly as as a time um, as a, as a timely as you know as as time consuming as placing catheters. But I would say that you know we do have an evolving field of interventional nephrology that's heavily focused on the training of vascular access procedures, and we know that that expertise out there exists. And there is interest among the nephrology community for um, interventional um, interventional um, procedures. And I would say that's really the group of nephrologists that I would suggest should have as equal opportunity and access to PD access training and develop their skills as, um, for example, they do for the vascular access procedures. 
And for example, at my center, nephrologists don't place catheters because we have interventional radiology. But um, uh, Matt, at your center, you definitely have uh, Dr. Born August, who um, is a, a nephrologist that has a keen interest in placing catheters. Maybe you can describe a little bit about that at your program. Um, we actually have three methods. Uh, one is uh, Borna Geist, who's doing it uh, sort of in a procedure room, uh, ultrasound guidance. We have radiology uh, doing it with ultrasound and fluoroscopy. And then we have uh, also have advanced laparoscopics. So we have three techniques. Uh, some of our challenges is maintaining sort of volumes for the different operators. Um, I mean, I think the general feeling is that a combined options or having both options at your in your program is perhaps ideal um, because there's other issues, medical issues, which can determine whether someone should have one versus the other. For example, are they uh, well enough to undergo a general anesthetic um, or in a, so, so sometimes a percutaneous is better in that regard. I just wanted to mention one thing, though, is that um, most of the percutaneous operators in the registry are using fluoroscopy to place the catheters, to confirm position of the catheter tip inside the peritoneum. And sometimes that is a limitation. So, you know, not every nephrologist can get access to a fluoroscopy suite, um, at least in the in the Canadian system. So I just wanted to add that wrinkle uh, in there. Yeah. But right you know, now, um, there's no formal training uh, uh, of uh, PD access insertion across nephrology fellowship programs. You sort of have to seek that out as an apprenticeship among centers within Canada that do place a PD access, um, you know, via nephrologists. It's but very you, popular. Think... It's very popular in our program. A lot of fellows come to us and ask if they right. can do it. But one yeah. challenge is volume. So I'd right. be interested in John Crabtree's thoughts on on volumes. But just for example, ours Jane uh, has mentioned who's who's a big percutaneous inserter in London that you need about fifty cases. He felt to be really really expert. So it's very. Yeah difficult for a yeah. trainee to get that kind of and, level. Of and in that, in that, in that paper in Jason that I point out in the U S the number of, uh, the number of insertions per operator was very, very low. So it really, I think, uh, you know, bolsters your point about volume and outcomes. John, what are your thoughts? Yes, I, I agree with uh, what Matt has said about the volume of, uh, procedures. Uh, there have been studies that have looked at this, uh, specifically for PD catheters and, uh, suggest that, Really, you don't start uh, developing uh, expertise or, or um, uh, economy of motion until you've done 20 cases at least. And so uh, the volume uh, is uh, important. Um, I wanted to kind of go back. You mentioned about, you know, interventional nephrology programs being more inclined toward hemoaccess instead of PD access. And, and I wonder what your thoughts are of what to, um, why the uh, direction of interest is uh, toward uh, hemo versus PD. I think um, I don't have I don't have an answer for you, and I'd love to um, um, to uh, maybe pose this on social media, Nikhil, uh, and ask uh, on social media why uh, is interventional nephrology not as enthused about PD access? We should. Um, I mean, you two, uh, you John and and Matt, on behalf of the ASN. Uh, home dialysis um, subcommittee of the COVID-19 response team made some pretty strong arguments why, and, and you've reiterated this to Matt, why we need to um, make sure that we have non-surgical access uh, opportunities. Uh, operating room shut down, PD access was not prioritized as a procedure, and so uh, programs that had access to um, either radiology or nephrology uh, placed catheters. I didn't know, Matt, that you have the luxury of both. 
um, you know, could not halt their, their PD programs were not halted uh, dead in their tracks. They could have an alternate route. So I think that one of the lessons I've learned from COVID-19 is we definitely need to have a non-surgical access pathway to complement a surgical access pathway. And I agree that programs that have access to both um, have a win-win situation. But back to your question, why is there no interest? Well, uh, money talks, I'm sure. And so I guess the question is, I don't know the current landscape for reimbursement for vascular access procedures versus reimbursement for um, PD access creation. But I certainly would surmise that if there was some increased reimbursement that went to PD access creation, that it certainly might pique the interest of some interventionalists to consider it. Of course, um, a lot of people trained at a time in the US uh, prior to 2011 when home dialysis was declining in its utilization. And I think that that also is um, another factor that probably um, also resulted in less expertise in um, PD access insertion by uh, nephrologists where, you know, we were part of the fistula first boom, uh, you know, and there was a huge emphasis on getting uh, surgical vascular access. Uh, and with that came uh, the procedures that needed to maintain patency. But I think all the stars are aligned for us to reevaluate this and ask that question uh, and hopefully move forward with better resources. But as Matt said, it's kind of like um, a cyclical problem. If you don't have people that are inserting them now, then where are you going to send people to train to get the expertise to do it? So we kind of have to have a rethink about this and you know figure out where are the centers of excellence where people can actually go and learn because I would say that to, you know, to say you're going to have an interventional nephrology training program and learn how to put in PD access, I would hazard that very few programs in the country could support such a training program with their current volumes. So we've got to kind of have a, a workaround to think about that. And then that just continuously feeds the problem of the next group of people we're training. Mm -hmm. I, I think you're correct in about uh, the uh, finances, the reimbursement uh, probably motivates um our interest in the type of access that we're uh, prone to pursue. Uh, in the United States, I can tell you that uh, uh, all of the PD access uh, procedures uh, reimburse at about half of what you would get for making a Navy fistula. So there's a, uh, there's a real uh, uh, problem there, I think. Um, and, we use, and the problem is more than just trying to get CMS to tweak the reimbursement schedule is mm -hmm. because they do have a very a rigid process in yeah. which they um, decide about um, yeah. uh, so-called uh, uh, relative work values yeah. uh, that they use to compare to other procedures performed yeah. uh, so that they'll never be able to justify uh, increasing the P PD access uh, rates based upon their, their current process. Uh, what we have proposed is an outcomes-based incentive program uh, based upon the outcomes uh, so that uh, they uh, get a, uh, you know, Medicare could essentially um, um, in, increase their um, outcomes by uh, by reimbursing more, but uh, they could uh, do this by uh, rewarding the uh, provider with uh, an incentive amount that exceed that's added to their usual reimbursement if their outcomes are satisfactory over some set period of time. Um, but we haven't really got any movement on that. We have proposed that with some of the large dialysis organizations who have other incentive programs to try to include this, but haven't really made any uh, progress with that. 
that just opened up a whole can of worms for me in a line of questioning. But um, I will say that if CMS and other government bun, uh, bodies are listening, um, a very uh, wise nephrologist wrote a paper called Choosing PD Reduces the Incidence of, um, of, PD, of uh, Access Interventions. And uh, from a downstream of impact of placing a PD catheter, uh, you might be less likely to require access interventions down the road compared to an AV fistula. So the opportunity cost of increasing reimbursement for PD access may still be more cost-effective than let's say a surgical AV access or maintaining somebody with a catheter. And that uh, wise author is, is on our podcast right now. Matt, do you just want to describe your, your findings in that paper? I think that's a real golden, you know, I think that's one of my go-to um, golden papers to pull out when I'm talking about some of the benefits of PD from an access perspective. Uh, well, thanks for mentioning that and uh, remembering that, Jeff. I mean, Early in our work, we we did a lot of work around isolating a population which was eligible for both uh, peritoneal dialysis and hemodialysis. Um, roughly about 70% of patients are considered eligible for PD, and then the 30% that are not are usually considerably sicker. So if you have to sort of take them out of the analysis in order to get apples to apples. And then we use that um, sort of lens to look at all kinds of different outcomes and mortality. And I've always been interested in access. And in that paper, it showed that Patients undergoing PD, patients who chose PD, who were who could have chosen either one, they had less invasive uh, need for procedures, and so um, we don't often. Sometimes we forget about that. Like I run a, I do a lot of vascular access work as well, and it 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 strikes me how often we see people who have say very small veins, um, and it's going to be it's obvious that they're going to their HD access is going to be a challenge right from the get go. And yet they're not redirected into PD. So often I say to people who I who we see in access clinic for fistulas, oh, your veins are very small. You're looking at a brachial basilic fistula right off the bat. You know, why don't you look at PD again? Uh, because, you know, you could get three, four, five years of PD um, without even ever having to enter your vascular system. So I think that's a really critical message that people need to understand mm -hmm. patients doing. I don't want to, I don't want to go too far here, but Patients, you know, all those patients in hemo that undergo many, many vascular access procedures. And um, and I, you can't think of a sort of a PD person in general who would need that level, you know, of intervention. And and I want to just, um, the second thing that that uh, John said, um, that, that, that's great, Matt, I completely agree with you. The second thing, John, is you sort of proposed the carrot strategy um, of incentivizing outcomes, um, if I understood you correctly. Um, Matt, you know, in Canada uh, and in the UK and in many other countries, it's very easy, easy in quotation marks, and you can describe your trials and tribulations with the registry. But in general, you know, you're Sunnybrook, you have your access, you have your CKD patients, they get PD access, they come to your program, you can track the journey from start to finish. We can track the journey at St. Michael's in the UK, it's similar. In the US, the journey is complicated, for example. It's you start off in a nephrologist's office, then you end up in a surgeon's office who might place the catheter somewhere else. Then you end up in an outpatient dialysis clinic. And there's all this fragmentation in the transition process and in the care, um, you know, getting somebody established on PD. Could we even, you know, maybe John, your comments and then Matt from, from the North American PD catheter registry, could we even build a system that could track PD access outcomes? Let's not talk about what we're measuring, but is that even a feasible goal? 
you know, and I've said this many times that we track, you know, programs track peritonitis. We're reporting KT over V urea for what that's worth, for example, and don't get me started on that soapbox. But something so as fundamental as important to the patient experience like PD access, we don't track in the US and we ought to. Is that even something we can do, do you think? I'm wondering if it would be best uh, tracked uh, by the large dialysis organizations than by the government itself. Um, you know, the uh, the government is also giving large dialysis organizations incentive programs. Uh, why why couldn't that uh, program that's extended to the LDOs uh, also include uh, following the outcomes of these uh, uh, PD catheters? Right, but they don't often see patients till they first present for their treatments. Correct. So we might even miss people, for example, that get a catheter and never even make it to. Um, an outpatient home dialysis clinic. And that's the challenge, I think. Oh, yeah, it is. And, and maybe, Matt, you can comment on that from the registry and maybe your lens from trying to collect this data in Canada and the U.S. on similarities and differences um, in the feasibility of doing something like this large scale in the future. It is, uh, it is a little more challenging in the United States. We had programs where they just simply couldn't follow the people um, or they couldn't enroll the patient because they knew they couldn't follow them. So that was a bit unique. Um, but this makes me think of um, one of the challenges that you, if, if people read this paper, you'll see that there's there's kind of many different ways to calculate these outcomes. Um, and in terms of which outcome is included, what is the consequence of the outcome? And, and you know, did it require a procedure to determinate therapy? Um, and then what's in the denominator? So I think what I did like about this paper is that they used a very similar definition to the guidelines, um, which is the endpoint was flow restriction or pain, uh, and that led in this case to procedures. In our registry, we also use termination, but I, it's a pretty clean uh, outcome. Um, I would like to see it separated, uh, just to put my two cents in, between pain and flow. I think those are two different things. It would be nice to be to report those separately, but I think that's something we might be able to zone in on that's pretty simple, pretty important, and most programs could um, measure it. Now that, that's a really good perspective. Mm -hmm. um, I want to point out that we're PD International, and I know we've talked a lot about North America based on all of us being from North America, but you know, PD Access is having a moment on the uh, the journal circuit. In this, uh, this uh, recently in Kidney International reports, um, the group from the UK published their experience with the UK catheter study, uh, looking at surgical versus uh, percutane. I, I think they called it medical surgical versus medical PD access placement showing um, slightly improved outcomes with uh, medical, perhaps if I'm, if I'm remember correctly, uh, particularly in the domains of infection, which I find really surprising. And, and I wanted to know if either of you could comment on why there might be differences in, in infection risk um, with uh, percutaneous strategies versus surgical. Um, um, I had I'm some trouble understanding. I'm familiar with that paper. And yeah. One of the things that was interesting is that they tried to get at programmatic uh, intervention. So the medical the, the programs that had a medical model rather than just a surgical model, they tended that they did have more frequent review of peritonitis rates and auditing of peritonitis rates. They also had some other differences in terms of their volumes and then and the amount of urgent PD. So that part of it was is it is it the is it the technique itself? Or is that the medical model is in, in programs that have other things going on, which is reducing right. the complications. 
which right. is in part why it was a complicated analysis if you if you read that paper. Yes, the statistics are challenging. Um, and, and I would say that it is another paper along with the paper from Japan that sort of cements the idea that we really need to think about having uh, various methods of PD access insertion um, available. The rates of complications were very, were quite high. Yes. Now, they looked at all, they looked at a broader range of complications, not just pain and flow. But if you looked at the the rate of the, the curve, they, you know, the, most patients were having complications, I think by a year or something. Can't remember exactly, but not right. this 90, 93%. Yeah. Agency and and that's tricky. You know, at what point do you sort of say this isn't an access related problem? The longer you're out from a PD access and established on PD, the more a problem becomes less related to the method of insertion and more to other noise that's going on. So uh, I think that that's also a challenge, too, that you sort of have to draw a line in the sand and say most of the challenges when they're going to occur are going to occur after this period post catheter insertion. Uh, if we want to look at quality uh, quality metrics and um, you know potentially modifiable ways to improve access function, uh, I'm going to turn to you, John, and ask you another question. Something that I get asked a lot. So you know, I go and I speak and I talk about the importance of PD access and how it's such an important lifeline to our patients. And I hear the stories about surgeons that just aren't motivated or programs that are having challenges engaging their surgeons and do have poor outcomes, though they're not measuring it as they should be. Um, and, and hopefully Matt will help change the landscape on that. How do you approach a program that's struggling because of surgical motivation to learn and to improve? Um, you know, we'd love to clone you around the country um, and have you place PD access for all of us, but how do we approach that challenging surgeon or operator um, in particular regions where, where programs are struggling? And we're not talking about sort of large urban centers where there's 10 people to choose from. We might be talking about smaller centers where the pool of available surgeons might be more limited, for example. You know, I think this is a real uh, <clears throat> challenging problem because I've been faced with that same question. And actually, I've been sent to some of these locations where they were having major challenges. And, you know, sometimes it's just related to the fact that the surgeon has not had adequate training or, or doesn't understand the importance of, of what they're doing. And I think also, again, we get back to this financial um, aspect uh, of it. Uh, so uh, you, you try to uh, encourage them to attend some of our training programs. Uh, you know, we do give a kind of an access awareness lecture that will hopefully stimulate them to want to pursue uh, additional uh, uh, training or at least a, a personal investigation on how to improve their, their outcomes. But I think it's going to be a continuing uh, problem. I don't have a good solution for it. It's very frustrating. Yeah. And, you know, of course, as the nephrologist, <clears throat> it's very difficult to, it is very difficult to uh, have these conversations because it's sort of like a, who are you to tell me how to do surgery. And I think what I've tried to do is connect surgeons with people like you, uh, people locally in Canada, for example, like Dr. Penner. I know there's um, Dr. Wernsing as well, um, who places PD access, just to get the, um, the you know, uh, colleague to colleague discussion happening. But um, I do think that, again, it comes back to reimbursement and interest. I do think that we really need to consider 
uh, a change in policy and reimbursement to spark interest into improving outcomes. We and I think we, you know, I think the study from Japan shows us that we really do do need to measure these outcomes. And um, you know, I'll be really excited to see more come out from the North American PD catheter registry that will continue to push policymakers to um, measure and track PD access outcomes because it's so important. Mm -hmm. um, just a question for you, for you, um, John. When do you think we're going to see a refresh, or when would you see where the right timing would be to think about an updated PD access guidelines, the ISPD? And I'm not going to hold you to it, and I know that there's a whole guidelines committee that reviews that, um, but I certainly see a lot of interesting stuff that has come up in the interim in the PD access space. Uh, so what are your thoughts on that? So where do you think the deficits are in the current uh, access um, guidelines? Um, I would say... I wouldn't say deficits because that's something negative. I would say, what could we contribute? Uh, what could we add or, or provide uh, something additional to that exists beyond? I would say, um, you know, one thing that I thought of, uh, and I'm just I'm just throwing this out there, is uh, it, it seems like it's a lot to talk about best practices for placement. There's sort of the surgical and technical aspects of placement of the multiple techniques, and then there's the managing complications and measurement. It almost seems to me like we might even want to think about a position statement on how to measure and report PD access outcomes as a as a body. And then the PD access guidelines would also supplement, the PD access guidelines might focus on best practices for insertion and complication management. Um, just a thought. It just seems like there's just so much evolving in how we're measuring it uh, what works, what doesn't, what's a practical approach. Um, so I wouldn't say deficit. I would say there's just so much out there and there's such a wealth of knowledge in those existing guidelines. It's just expanding on the topics that have been covered. Okay. So I could see, yeah, I could see where we could probably uh, uh, expand on the part about the me the measurements, um, yeah. how to document the, uh, the outcomes and maybe be a little bit more in detail about the uh, the auditing process. Yeah. Um, there have, uh, there really, in my uh, opinion, there really hasn't been a lot of uh, additional movement with uh, management of complications with regards to the PD access itself. Yeah. Um, You're probably right about that. Yeah. Uh, the thing that, uh, that we don't have, and we ran into this when we did the uh, ISPD uh, guidelines for catheter-related infections, but there's really not a good outline of how to approach uh, salvaging catheters for uh, catheter-related infections. Yeah. Uh, I, you know, we went round and round with that yeah. in trying to to get yeah. that fixed uh, in the, those particular guidelines. So that's certainly an area that could be uh, improved. The other thing I'm thinking about, again, I'm just throwing ideas out here. It's a lot, and Anna Figueroa mentioned this um, actually when she wrote an editorial about the infection guidelines. Um, you know, it almost seems like sometimes when you describe a catheter salvage procedure, for example, it's almost like, you know, you'll understand this in three minutes if you watch a video about this or, or a multimedia illustration. So it almost seems like maybe we could um, make these guidelines come to life by having links and access to uh, simple videos that can demonstrate some of these. You can sort of click on the guideline and they'll take you to a, a supplementary material with a video. 
to show you this procedure. Yeah, that would be good. We, but we don't often get to plan our infection, infectious complications in advance to get right. a film crew there. Right, <laughs> right. Um, no, we'll, we'll have to we'll have to follow you with a film crew for two years. That John, we'll call it Doctor Crabtree, the documentary. <laughs> yeah, I, none of the chickens had previous abdominal surgeries. If I'm not <laughs> <laughs> and 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 the data shows that nearly 22% of these people the patients had previous abdominal surgeries and being on uh, uh, Matt's paper there there was a lot of discussion about that so question to Matt right this is nephrologists open catheters open open surgeries with previous abdominal surgeries what are your thoughts about that um yeah we have a we have a couple papers we're working on now looking at the the role of previous abdominal surgery on uh, catheter outcomes, um, and also the role specifically of adhesions. The, they, they do have impact, particularly adhesions, um, even when adhesiolysis is, is um, practiced. So one of the things that struck me as you were having those conversations is, I think we need to move beyond the theoretical measurement or what the recommended measurement and move towards actually measuring it. Uh, in programs. I think that to me would move things forward. So if we could agree and we have a good yardstick with the patency calculation and this Japanese paper shows that it, you know, they've calculated across their systems. I think we need to start really looking at what our performance is, just like we kind of know our peritonitis rate. And um, and I think that will help us start to understand if a program is is ha is struggling what are what are their numbers looking like and, and what's that associated with? I think that would be an improvement. And the second component of that is case mix. So, you know, if you're doing one of the challenges comparing percutaneous versus laparoscopic insertion is that laparoscopic uh, surgery is being done on the more complex cases. So you, you're not measuring apples to oranges when you look at those two comparisons, you must adjust for case mix. And that's another important point. So for example, if you have a lot of patients in your practice that have prior abdominal surgery or adhesions observed at the time of surgery, they are going to have a higher complication rate. Their, their patency will not be 95%, I don't believe, at one year. So that's kind of resetting things as well. So sort of uh, that to me is where we, I think we need to move forward. But is that data in Japan even at all obtainable in a program? It's... We, it's a great question, but we don't actually know because we don't have that number at our fingertip, right? Like John John and, his, and the guidelines say 95% patency at one year for advanced laparoscopic techniques, so an 80% for other techniques, yeah. but we don't actually know what programs are achieving. And we hear a lot about, oh, we, got, we have great outcomes, we don't have any problems, our operators are great, great whether it's yeah. radiology, nephrology, or surgeon, but we when you say... What's your peritone? What's your sort of the yeah. what's your number? What's your patency number at 12 months? Yeah. Nobody has the number on their the, finger. Yeah. And then the other thing you just made me think about, and again, I'm I'm quoting your work, um, is you've shown that when you systematically evaluate people for PD and you ask people what the issues are around eligibility, previous abdominal surgery comes up pretty high up there, right, Matt? As a what people perceive, not not actual what people perceive as a contraindication to PD, um, which of course we know we can overcome with the resources and the detail 
and the expertise of the techniques that John has described with advanced laparoscopic placement. But it just got me thinking in Japan, and I'd love to hear what, what the authors would think about this, is remember, in Japan, only 1% to 2% of all patients with ESKD actually get PD. And you do wonder upstream what the eligibility algorithm is for PD in Japan. And would someone with extensive abdominal surgery or would somebody with um, we might call a, a slightly complicated abdomen not even be offered PD in the first place? So is their experience based on already pre-selection uh, of a different case mix? And I think that in, in, you know, in Canada, for example, in the UK and other countries, I think that there's probably a lot of variability in what we perceive eligibility for PD is. And certainly in my program, previous surgery is not an absolute contraindication to PD, which can be overcome. So it's interesting, you, you do mention that case mix, and, and, might, and that might be something that's predetermined upstream uh, from the population of patients that are in our study, in that study in Japan. In this issue. Uh, I think there's a, there is some evidence that they did have some of that, in that they did remark that uh, the patients who were uh, uh, more complicated were more apt to be referred for laparoscopy. Right. And even more complicated than that, hemodialysis, maybe. We just don't know. Right. The, the, the BMI, the mean BMI was 23.2. Yeah. Wow. Yeah, pretty, we, yeah. I don't think I have a patient with BMI of 23.2 NPD. Right. Yeah, ours uh, average almost uh, 29 to 30. <laughs> exactly. So it's uh, it's comparison is difficult. Yeah. Yeah. No, and, and of course, of course, that's going to be something that will make uh, the generalizability to other to other um, parts of the world a little bit more challenging. But I do think confirms that at least, you know, um, in the hands of the operators in Japan with the investment they've made into PD access, um, and the uh, real attention to detail that outcomes are achievable, that uh, are really quite excellent and really a, a model for us all to continue to learn from. Um, and I think that it really does behoove us to, um, as an international community, learn from each other on best practices for PD access, but also appreciate that local solutions will require some modification of the way things are done in, in other parts, parts of the world. Um, any any final thoughts, Matt, on um, where you'd like to see PD access go uh, in a perfect world? If you're given carte blanche, what what studies do we need to do? What policies might we need to put into place across countries? What what uh, this is pie in the sky here? Um, what do you see as some of the major challenges right now that as a PD community we need to work forward on? Uh, the I think a big challenge is that if we're going to measure these things we have to engage the operators who are putting the PD catheters in. So in the PD catheter registry, we have over 100 operators at 22 different sites across North America. And, and some of them are clearly engaged, but unfortunately some of them are not. Um, for example, won't answer emails. So, you know, I think in order for us, to, if we're gonna create a quality report, first of all, if we're gonna go to the step of actually measuring our outcomes, we have to really try to engage those operators and ask them, how can we do this in a way that's helpful? We don't want to be blaming people, but we want a report that you find useful. And that could even be extended to industry who make the catheters. Um, it could be extended to regulators who or payers who want to evaluate for performance. I mean, that would be my sort of pie in the sky is that we have a sort of a, a, a report that we all use, that we all value and can be used to drive better practice. 
And and we've just had, we, you know, the holiday season is coming upon us in many parts of the world. Invite your access operators to your holiday parties. Um, get the open lines of communication open. Over a drink or two, it might be more uh, easy to discuss the access challenges at your center and establish a rapport. And I can tell you that that in my program really goes a long way. And um, I think that the more that they feel how important they are uh, to the success of your program and the more you engage them in as part of your practice and even get to meet um, some of the members of the team, I think um, it all comes down to like a team approach. Um, John, last words from you about, about this. And, and maybe I'll just ask you, how did you get so engaged and enthused in PD access? Did you wake up one day and have an epiphany as a general surgeon? This is what I want to do. I, so if you could answer that, I'm dying to know. And then your final words on sort of where we need to go um, okay. with PD access. So when I was hired for my particular medical group, I was the youngest surgeon in the group and we just opened up our in-house PD program. And so the, the chief of surgery's finger swung around the room and it landed on me. So I became the, the PD access surgeon, uh, designated hitter. And uh, of course, working with the PD unit and uh, with our nephrologists, which were fantastic, you did become part of the team. And that, that really is a fulfilling uh, uh, aspect of, of it. And I think this brings up something I, I wanted to mention. One of the things that one of our nephrologists did in Southern California was a uh, bring a surgeon to lunch program. And what they would do is they would invite the surgeon over to the PD unit, little finger sandwiches and what have you. The nephrologist would present a short uh, a program about uh, the medical and economic benefits of PD. And they would meet the PD nurses. Uh, they would tour them through the unit. Uh, they would uh, plant a patient in there who was undergoing training. Uh, the surgeon would see a cycler machine uh, that they had never seen before. And uh, this uh, this really kind of bonded people uh, together. And the surgeon did feel part of the team. And that, that was pretty successful in the, the limited area that we practiced that in Southern California. So that might be something that we could, we could still do. And it kind of, like you said, it, they become part of the team. Um, the other thing we didn't touch on, we probably out of time is that one of the problems we have in the United States, and I think uh, um, uh, uh, this was uh, described before, is that our uh, PD programs or our residency programs and fellowship programs uh, do not have rec set requirements for training in PD access, especially in general surgery. And this is uh, where the ACGME in the United States has kind of uh, not helped us out with this. Uh, they have requirements for vascular access, but they have not established criteria for PD access in their programs. And uh, I think even uh, Matt, you can probably follow up with this in the paper that you published with the 500 laparoscopic uh, um, uh, cases from the North American uh, PD access registry. Um, only 51% of the residents participated in the access procedures. So I think this is where something that that we, that should be uh, addressed. Right. So we also need to invite residents to lunch too. All right. I think we are about done here. Thank you so much for this absolutely entertaining podcast. And that's a wrap, folks. Thank you for listening to this exchange. Links to the paper, our Twitter X handles are in the show notes. And please reach out to us with your comments and suggestions. This is Jeff and Nikhil signing off until the next PD exchange.
Take care.